welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon. The subject of this episode of the podcast is the tax proposals in the updated version of the Build Back Better Act released by the House Rules Committee on October 28th and the subsequent manager's amendment released on November 3rd. In particular, we're gonna focus on the brand new domestic min tax proposal first seen in the draft released on October 28th. For this discussion, I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues here at KPMG, Jennifer Gray and Doug Palms. Jennifer is a director in the Federal Tax, Legislative, and Regulatory Services Group, also known as FLORS, in KPMG's Washington National Tax Practice. Doug is a principal in the International Tax Group of the WNT Practice here at KPMG and previously served as International Tax Counsel in the Office of Tax Policy at the Treasury Department. Jennifer and Doug, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Gary. Great to be here. Hi, Gary. Happy to be here. Okay, so we're recording this episode of the podcast on Friday, November 5th. Things are moving very fast, and we may have more updates as we go, actually, within the recording of this podcast. But let's go back a little bit to level set. The Ways and Means released its tax proposals for the House Reconciliation Bill, the Build Back Better Act, or BBBA, on September 13th. We went over these proposals in some depth on an earlier episode of the podcast entitled, Where There's a Will, There's a Ways and Means. Recently, the House Rules Committee has released two new versions of the BBBA, which include revised tax proposals on October 28th and November 3rd, and then even last night released a further amendment to the tax proposals related to the state and local tax deduction. Jennifer, first, before we get into the substance of the tax proposals, can you help us understand where we are in the legislative process and where do we go from here? Well, Gary, if you know, I was hoping you could tell me today has been quite the roller coaster. So we had start out today, Friday, expecting a vote on the reconciliation bill. It's now after 4 p.m., We are still waiting to see if they're going to have that vote or not. The latest information seems to be that they are not going to have that vote in the House on this bill as we had anticipated today. And I think the leadership is still trying to figure out when they could schedule that vote and garner the votes. Basically, as has been the case for several months, the situation in the House is that we are having a divide between the more progressive side of the Democratic caucus and the more moderate side of the Democratic caucus in the House. And they're having a hard time deciding on some of the information in the bill. Currently, the moderates are saying they would like to see the information on the bill, the analysis that could be provided by the Congressional Budget Office, our understanding as that could take a minimum of a week, possibly longer. And they are asking that the vote on the reconciliation bill be delayed until they receive that information from the Congressional Budget Office. So that appears to be where we are now as we speak again at four o'clock on Friday. When I was at Treasury 
I spent Christmas 2017 writing 965 notices. I've heard that my Christmas might be ruined again this time around. Is our Christmas vacation going to be ruined? And is there any possibility that this could actually extend into January? I think everything's a possibility at this point. Generally, my guess is that we would see large tax legislation dealt with the beginning to middle of December. My best guess is that's probably still where we are, assuming that they're able to come to an agreement at all on this bill and move it forward. But could it move further into December? Absolutely. And could it spill over into January? It's certainly a possibility. I know that that's not what the proponents of the bill would like. I think they would like to have it wrapped up before the end of the calendar year. But if they're close on a bill, certainly it's possible we could see some negotiations and some of the actual movement of the bill spill over into January. It's it's not outside the realm of possibility. And it, it's interesting. Some of the effective dates are obviously starting January 2022. Do those effective dates change if we spill over into 2022? They certainly could. My best guess is that it probably depends on how far into 2022 we go. I think certainly it's not a legal problem to have retroactive effective dates. And so, you know, if we're a few weeks into January, perhaps even into February, it's certainly possible we could see those effective dates still being the beginning of the calendar year. You know, I think the fact that these Proposals have been out for a while, and I think some folks would feel that taxpayers were on notice that these changes were in the works, and maybe they could justify retroactive effective dates because of that. But, you know, the further you get into the year, I think the harder it is from a political perspective to make those effective dates retroactive. Again, legally, they could still do that. It's It's been done several months retroactive, but I think politically, the further away you get from January 1, the more difficult it becomes to use that as the effective date. I had mentioned earlier our experiences with TCJ, but this feels a lot different. With the TCJ, there was a House bill, there was a Senate bill, and then there was a conference. It was, it at least felt like a fairly orderly process. This has been a interesting process to be charitable as it seems more of a showdown within the Democratic Party about who will jump off the cliff first. Originally, kind of, you know, what was being discussed was that a lot of the House members really wanted to, quote unquote, pre-conference the bill so yeah. that they already had those discussions with the Democrats in the Senate. And so they could feel pretty confident that whatever they were able to pass the House already had buy-in from the Senate and could pass the Senate pretty much as is. Just within the last week, from what we can tell, they have moved away from that idea. Now, what they seem to be doing in the House, at least the last few days, is putting together a bill that could pass the House without really taking into account completely whether or not it could pass the Senate as is. And at least the last version of the bill we've seen the last 48 hours, I think most folks would assume that that particular bill would probably see very substantial changes in the Senate and then, of course, have to come back to the House for further consideration or, or conference agreement where they would have to meet together to, to hammer those changes out. Yeah, I'd been under the impression that the Senate would just make tweaks at the edges of the House bill. And the more I hear Manchin talk, especially this morning or yesterday, he basically said, well, that's not the draft I'm starting off from. 
so do we expect to see significant changes or or are those if there are significant changes are we mostly talking about the non-tax side the spending side or could we see changes in the tax side as well you know we don't know at this point because sitting here again now 420 on friday we don't know what the house is going to pass if they're able to pass this bill that we've been looking at for the past 48 hours yeah i think that bill would see pretty substantial changes when it got to the senate i think it could certainly see some changes in the tax provisions as well but what we don't know sitting here right this second is whether or not we may have to see the house make some changes to their version of the bill before they're able to pass it assuming this does not move forward today we don't know what changes they might make in the house before they send it to the senate so perhaps they go back to what they were discussing two or three weeks ago which again is trying to get the senate on board before they send it over so right now i think honestly we are completely up in the air at least you know sitting here right this second perhaps you know in an hour or two we'll have more clarity yeah, I I think I understood the legislative process a little bit better two months ago than I do now. It's it's well, I've, getting. It's I, been I've bizarre. been doing this over twenty years, and I have I've never seen anything <laughs> like this, at least in tax legislation. It's been an education. Well, there's a first time for everything. So let's let's turn to something we can actually dip our fingers in a little bit more. Let's talk a little bit about the substance of the bill. Can you give us some of the big ticket headlines from the non-international tax pieces? Well, compared to the Ways and Means Committee bill that we saw in September, the bill that we've seen in the last 48 hours does have several significant changes. As far as deletions on the individual side, both the increase back to the 39.6% top rate and a capital gains rate increase were removed. And also on the corporate side, a corporate rate increase was removed. Now, our understanding is that reportedly those changes were made to accommodate some concerns of Senator Cinema over on the other side of the Hill. Also of interest is some things that are new that were included in this latest version that were not in the Ways and Means September bill. Of note, I would say those would be the 1% excise tax on stock buybacks. That is a new provision. And then probably the one getting the most attention is the corporate minimum tax. That appears to be based on a proposal from the Biden Treasury Department's Green Book from back in the spring. So again, those have received quite a bit of attention. The assumption is that those two provisions were at least partially put in the bill in order to increase revenue and to replace some of the revenue that was lost when the rate increases were taken out. Yeah, that Corbin tax proposal in the Biden Green Book, I told everyone they absolutely did not have to worry about this, and it shows up in the October 28th draft. We're going to return to the Corbin tax as we talk to Doug. Thanks, Jennifer. For now, I want to to run through some other notable changes to the international proposals in the BBBA relative to the draft that that was released in September and that we've already discussed, a few really important ones relate to effective dates. In general, there are delayed prospective dates for provisions such as the beats, uh, the changes to the guilty, including country by country, the increase to the guilty in FIDI rate, and the addition of Section 163N are all now proposed to begin 
on or after 1-1-2023. This is in line with the timeline provided for the OECD Pillar 2 work, so it made some sense from a competitiveness concern to delay these changes uh, so as to not hurt U.S. companies. Another point on the effective dates, the Ways and Means proposal in September had had a number of technical corrections that had been proposed to be retroactive to the date of the TCJ. These included the reinstatement of 958B4, the creation of new Section 951B, the FOCFC regime, and added anti-abuse language in 245 Cap A. All these changes are no longer retroactive. They would be prospective, not to 2023, but at least to 2022, or in the case of changes to 245 Cap A to distributions after date of enactment. Another headline here is the corporate rate has not changed. It's still 21% but the FIDI and guilty deductions would be reduced, thus increasing the FIDI and guilty rates. So the FIDI deduction would be 24.8% based on a 21% corporate rate. That means approximately a 15.8% FIDI rate that's up from a current 13.125%. Guilty deduction would be 28.5%. Again, at a 21% corporate rate, that creates a guilty rate of 15.015%, effectively 15%. So it would be going up from 10.5 to 15. These are both lower rates than the rates under the Ways and Means proposal. 15.8 for FIDI was proposed to be 20.7% under the September proposal and 15% rate for guilty had been proposed to be 16.56% under the September proposal. Gary, I was going to add that the 15% rate for guilty now is the level of the Pillar 2 minimum rate. So that's pretty significant. I mean, obviously they weren't going to propose a rate that would go below 15. That's a really good thing to point out. It's entirely consistent with the theory of the case that guilty would converge with pillar two as time went on. I think the Biden rate would have been 21%, goes down to 16.56% in the Ways and Means proposal. And here we are, finally got down to 15% in the latest draft. Some headlines related to changes to the beat include that the rates accelerate faster and end at a higher rate, 18% for tax years beginning after 12-31-2024, so starting in 2025. Also, if a corporation is an applicable tax year for any year after 12-31-21, it would remain an applicable taxpayer for the 10 succeeding tax years. That is a new provision in the October 28th draft. Changes to 163 N and O. One big change, a good change, is that carry forward of interest disallowed under either 163 J or N. 
is indefinite rather than just five years. So indefinite carry forwards. It's a good. That's a good. Good news for taxpayers. And finally, changes to the foreign tax credit rules. The Ways and Means proposal had eliminated the carry back of foreign tax credits and trimmed carry forward of FTCs from 10 to five years, but it also permitted guilty FTCs to be carried forward for five years. Under the most recent proposal, the FTC carry forward remains 10 years as under current law and guilty taxes can still be carried forward, but it will be limited to, to five years for any taxes paid or accrued in tax years before 2031. So there'll be a temporary limitation to five years and then it would be 10 years afterwards. So those are sort of the high level changes. But again, we want to focus on the min tax because that is the big change here. Doug, can you first give a high level overview of this min tax and and also talk about the expected scope? Sure thing, Gary. Yes, this is a new proposal that we, we even though it was in the Biden Green Book, as Jennifer said, it, it, it wasn't part of the House Ways and Means proposal. And it would basically, at a high level, impose alternative minimum tax representing 15% of adjusted financial statement income. Uh, and you would get to consider things like financial statement NOLs and an AMT foreign tax credit, and you would compare it to your regular tax and any excess would be imposed under this corporate profits minimum tax. It should be noted that there's two kind of elements to how this uh, proposal would work. First, a taxpayer would have to qualify as an applicable corporation, and we'll talk in detail about that, but it applicable corporation are corporations that are other than RICS, REITs, and S-Corps that report over a billion dollars in average annual adjusted financial statement income. And that's based on a three-year average for the three prior preceding years. And it would take into account NOLs for that purpose. So a large threshold requirement of a billion dollars. And, and we'll get to your scoping question in a second. But when you do this computation, you look at all persons that are treated as a single employer under Section 52. Something similar was done for the BEAT as well in determining what an applicable taxpayer is for the BEAT. And then there are special rules for foreign parented international financial reporting groups that we'll talk about. The second part of this Corpman tax is that if you are an applicable corporation that meets this threshold requirement, then you would compute a tentative minimum tax, which is 15% again of your adjusted financial statement income, taking into consideration financial statement NOLs and AMT foreign tax credits. And then you would compare that tentative minimum tax amount to your the corporation's regular tax liability. And the regular tax liability, it's made clear, would include BEAT. And the min tax would be any excess amount. And you can reduce that excess amount by general business credits, such as R&D credits, but the amount that you can reduce for general business credits is, is limited to 75% of an amount that roughly is your regular tax, your min tax, your beat, 
and reduced by foreign tax credits and both your AMT foreign tax credits and, and, and Section 901 regulatory foreign tax credits. So that's how you come up with the computation. Now, going back to the concept of being an applicable corporation, because a lot rides on being an applicable corporation, the language is clear that a corporation would need to qualify as an applicable corporation in a prior year that's after 2021. And so this corporate minimum tax proposal applies for tax years beginning after 2022. So 2023, 2023 years are the first years that take effect. But this applicable corporation concept is qualifying in a prior year after 2021. So if you're in 2023 and you're looking back to the three-year average, you're doing it by reference to the prior year, so 2022, which is a year after 2021, and you would look at 2022, 2021, and 2020 to determine if you're an applicable corporation. Once it's determined that you are an applicable corporation in any post-2021 tax year, you remain an applicable corporation even if for a subsequent three-year period you would not meet the three-year average. So that's really significant. And Gary, when you were summarizing the beat, you talked about a rule that you you stay an applicable taxpayer for 10 succeeding years. This is an indefinite, you stay as an applicable corporation. However, the new proposal contemplates the Treasury would write rules that would address uh, ownership changes or cases where there's a consistent reduction in adjusted financial statement income. And and in those cases, the Treasury would allow you to get out of applicable corporation status. Though, If your facts change in in the calculation threw you back in, you would be back in. But Treasury will, will, will determine what rules would determine to get you out of that status. Now, because this is an international tax podcast, we'll focus on the international aspects of this proposal, there is a lot to talk about. A very key question is how it applies to foreign parented international financial reporting groups. If you're a foreign parented group, there is a second requirement um, to meet in order to be an applicable corporation, and that is you have to have $100 million of U.S.-related profit. When you're talking about the $100 million requirement, that's talking about ECI or CFC income. If you are an AMT, this is very typical of an AMT tax that you would be eligible to take a tax credit for AMT paid in prior years against your normal tax in a subsequent year to the extent in, the, in that subsequent year normal tax exceeds your tentative minimum tax for that year. So that smooths out the system. The NOLs can also be carried forward indefinitely, but your AMT F foreign tax credits can only be carried over for five years. So, how many corporations are expected to be in scope for the corporate min tax? So there, there was a one pager that accompanied a, a version of the alternative corporate min tax that proposal that came from Chairman Wyden and Senators Warren and King that indicated that roughly about 200 companies would be in scope. And it's interesting to note that the Biden Green Book proposal that would have used a $2 billion threshold indicated that 120 companies in that case would be in scope. 
But there have been articles recently that have analyzed this, and particularly a Marty Sullivan article that only identified 25 U.S. companies that would meet the billion-dollar threshold requirement, and of those estimating only 12 would incur minimum tax liability in any one year. But there would also be presumably foreign-parented groups that could also be in scope. But all that to say that this proposal would be limited to a very finite number of companies. So how is book income determined for purposes of the House proposal? Book income is based on the concept of adjusted financial statement income. So what does that mean? And what are you talking about when you talk about financial statements? Well, the applicable financial statements is defined by reference to Section 451 and includes GAAP statements, IFRS statements, and other financial statements that are used for reporting to a government agency such as the SEC, like a 10K, or the foreign equivalent of a 10K. Um, Interesting, this is similar to the Section 163N definition of applicable financial statement. And in fact, the idea of using financial statement income is very popular these days. We have the Scorp Index, we have 163N, and we have, and Pillar 2 at OECD would use, of course, international financial reporting group audit financial statements. So this seems to be a trend. Then you, you take the, the earnings from those statements and you make certain adjustments. For instance, you would add back any foreign income taxes that are paid or deemed paid by the corporation if they're electing to credit those taxes. Then if it's a U.S. corporation that has CFCs, the U.S. corp would pick up into the adjusted financial statement income its proportionate share of the net CFC income. And that's whether the CFC income is separate F, guilty, or 245 cap A earnings, it doesn't matter. You pick up your proportionate share. And then if the U.S. Corp. has any disregarded entities, those are the earnings of those disregarded entities would be picked up as part of the U.S. company's earnings. And in the case of CFC income, it, it is a net computation. So if you have CFCs with positive income and CFCs with losses, you net them together. You don't have to worry about country by country or anything like that. Now, for foreign corporations, that's determined using the principles of Section 882 and so that was a new addition to the rules committee version of the bill and 82 is an ECI concept and then a corporation picks up its distributive share partnership income and then this is important that the the taxpayer could have interest in entities that are not sufficiently large to be part of the group that's the financial reporting group but it could be for instance uh, an equity interest that to which you apply equity accounting. And the proposal would have you not apply the equity method to bring out all the proportionate share of earnings of those entities. Instead, you would only include dividends received from those entities or any amounts that are deemed included in gross income under tax principles other than separate F and guilty, which is addressed otherwise. But it does leave open that question, if you have an investment at less than a controlling interest in a subsidiary and you use mark-to-market principles, do you account for that interest by considering any gains from the mark-to-market or does the rule that says you don't take into account the earnings of those entities, how does that interact with mark-to-market is an open question. 
And then once you figure out the adjusted financial statement income with the relevant adjustments, as I mentioned before, you can take a, a AIM and TNOL, and that is the lesser of the aggregate amount of your financial statement and it will carry over lesser of that amount or 80% of your adjusted financial statement income, similar to regular tax. And then financial statement NOLs are determined by taking into account your, your financial statement losses, but only for taxable years ending after 2019. And Treasury has granted broad authority to address a number of the computational issues involved here. You had mentioned the ability to take an EMT foreign tax credit. How is that determined? That's right, Gary. You do get an AMT foreign tax credit and that for CFC income, you take the lesser of the pro rata share of, of the applicable corps foreign taxes paid by its CFC. So it's applicable share that are taken into account in the taxpayer's applicable financial statements. And you take the lesser of that or 15% of the net aggregate adjustment for the corporation's income and loss from its CFCs that I talked about earlier. So it's either the actual taxes that are in the state in the financial statements or 15% of the pro rata share of the CFC's income. And then on top of that, if it's a U.S. company that pays foreign taxes directly, not through deemed taxes from a CFC, but if it has foreign withholding taxes that are paid or if it has foreign branches that pay local foreign taxes, those are allowed without limit for the AMT foreign tax credit. And if you do have a, a limit because of the CFC rule that hits the 15% cap, you're allowed to carry forward, as I mentioned before, any excess AMT credits for five years. We've talked quite a bit on this podcast about BEPS 2.0 and specifically Pillar 2. Some have expressed the concern that payments to a U.S. parent or its U.S. subsidiaries, because not subject to an income inclusion rule, could be subject to the so-called undertax payments rule, or UTPR, if the U.S. is not subject to a sufficiently high level of tax from a Pillar 2 perspective. Would the UTPR be turned off with respect to payments to U.S. companies if they're subject to the bookman tax? That's a great question, Gary. And at first blush, you would think that the corporate bookman tax proposal would be considered pillar two compliance. So you could turn off the UTPR because you're applying a 15% rate on financial statement income, which is exactly kind of what pillar two is doing with certain adjustments, of course, et cetera. But what causes concern about this corporate min tax being pillar two compliant is the fact that, as I mentioned, you're allowed to deduct general business credits like R&D credits when you do this computation. And as a, as a result of allowing the general business tax credits, this corporate minimum tax may not be considered pillar two compliant. Before we close on this episode of the podcast, I wanted to provide our listeners an update. As I indicated at the top, we recorded this episode on Friday, November 5th in the afternoon. It's now Monday, November 8th. Jennifer, what happened on Friday and what is its significance to the BBBA? Well, Friday night went pretty late as far as the house being in. Basically, what they ended up doing with the bill is that there was 
an agreement between the moderates and the progressive caucus in the House, where the moderates indicated that they would like to see the Congressional Budget Office analysis, and the plan is to vote on the Build Back Better Act by November 15th or so. Hopefully, the CBO will have some analysis prepared by then or shortly thereafter, and the plan is to have a vote in the House at that time. There was a procedural vote completed Friday evening that uh, would just move one step closer toward a final vote on that bill. Thanks for the update, Jennifer, and thanks, Doug. Thank you both for joining us today and, and to all of you for tuning in. This wraps up our exploration of the tax proposals and the latest version of the House's Build Back Better Act. As always, we'll be here to update you on the developments and progress or setbacks along the road to U.S. international tax reform. So please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax. Until our next episode, take care.